Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. All right, open up to Galatians chapter 4, and we're going to pick up at verse 12. Galatians 4 at 12, but let's go back to the beginning of 4 and read through 20. So 4, 1 through 20. This is the word of the Lord. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which were by nature, you were slaves to those by na- which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe. But you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They eagerly seek you not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, And not only when I am present with you, my children, with whom I again, whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, but I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is the word of the Lord. So Galatians is a book about conflict. It's a book about a conflict that was taking place in a particular group of churches in modern-day Turkey and the region of Galatia. And the problem there was Gentiles were being converted through the preaching of the Apostle Paul. Gentiles were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. They were repenting of their idolatry repenting of having worshipped uh, the 
creature rather than the creator. And then, after the apostle has gone through the region, in come these uh, Judaizers. In come Jews from Israel who have a profession of faith, who claim that Jesus is the Messiah, but who add to the gospel some requirements derived from the law, particularly the ceremonial laws. That we can't abandon Moses, we have to be full Bible Christians, they're teaching, right? And we, we need to bring back some of the um, distinctives of the Jewish faith and add those to our faith. Let's try some food laws. Let's try going back to circumcision. Let's try some of those things. And so that's the context within which the letter is written. And of course, all of that can be summarized in uh, the difference between the Apostle Paul's theology and the difference between the Judaizers' theology was Paul was preaching uh, uh, that merit, the merit you need to stand before God is supplied to you by God himself through, through the mechanism of faith, whereas the Judaizers were saying, yes, it's faith, but it's also works. And that will, that will build up your merit so that when, one day when you stand before God and he judges you and, and takes into consideration what you've merited, then you will have those works by which you can impress God. Of course, they're not very impressive, right? And especially not very impressive if, um, if compared to the uh, pile of sinful transgressions you've built up uh, against an angry God. So that's the context of the letter. So the letter really is about pounding home what he had preached already there, which is you're saved by faith. Justification is by faith alone. Okay? You must believe. There are not works you do to build up your merit. You believe, and what is credited to you? Righteousness of Christ is given to you. It is yours, it, and that comes through faith, okay? So now he's in the middle of this, and the last time what we went through, 1 through, or 8 through 11, I think we did last time, but um, the first part of this, certainly 11, 8 through 11, is don't turn back. Apostle Paul is saying don't turn back. Why would you turn back to that which is weak and worthless? Weak and worthless elemental things, right? And those weak and worthless elemental things, we can put within that two categories. One category would be Gentiles looking to the creation, worshiping of idols, you know, um, that sort of elemental thing. But there's an, also an elemental thing in the sense that the ceremonial law, if followed to build up your merit and if followed to justify you, is a weak and worthless elemental thing. It has no power. It was never meant to have the power to save. The keeping of the law was never meant to be a means of salvation. OK? 
okay? And so uh, it condemns, it does that. And so then to go back to the law and to say, okay, if I do these things, God will be pleased with me, and that's the way that I'm going to enter into his presence one day, is to, is to essentially make yourself a, an idolater. You're looking to something other than the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. So rather gnarly of the Apostle Paul um, to level everything that way. But part of what he does, even especially in the book of Romans, is like level Jews and Gentiles. Just, you know, all have fallen short of the glory of God. Right? He talks about the privileges that the Jews have in their faith. They had the oracles of God. They had the prophets. They had God leading them through the wilderness. But um, at the end of the day, if you seek to be justified by your works, you have done nothing better than a Gentile idolater. All right, so now we get to 412. That's the background. Or I guess I could ask if there are any questions, review or thoughts or questions that you might have. Questions, really, not thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the Apostle Paul says that the law is good, but don't make the law do something it wasn't, it can't carry the weight that some people try to make it carry. Okay? And to get to the point where you are keeping the law of God as a means of salvation means that you, you have a hyper inflated sense of your works. Insanely hyperinflated sense of your works, and an insanely hyper diminished, deflated sense of your sins. You sin a hundred, hundreds of times a day. You do. Trust me. Teenagers, it's thousands of times a day. <laughs> the gray headed. As I, I officially qualify on Monday, when I turn 50, um, tens of times a day. <laughs> right, Sandy? <laughs> You're shaking, no. Give me some hope. <laughs> He's tired. Tired, yeah. I mean, I, I'm just vamping on what uh, I was reading Calvin before. Uh, coming in here, just I read his commentary on Galatians to get an injection of zeal, and um, and he repeatedly just comes back to that 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 if you think you can if you think you can do good works, you're not even considering just how how sinful you are and how much there is to overcome. And he he just said he just said in one of these sermons, you sin hundreds of times a day, 
And that is undoubtedly the truth. Um, but here now we shift. The, the Apostle Paul is a pastor. He's, he's a shepherd. And so he, up to this point in the book, I think he's really been making his theological case. He's gone to Abraham, you know, he's gone to the scriptures, he's, he's built it. Now he gets personal. Now he's like, okay, now that we've got that out there and I've just demolished the argument of your opponents, now I want to talk to you, each one of you. I want to warn you. That's where we are in the letter now. That's where he gets to. And it starts with these words, I beg of you. I beg of you. He's, he's like on his knees and he's like, I beg of you. You know, there, there is something at stake here. And maybe you've just glazed over over four chapters, although it's, you know, a short letter. Um, you've glazed over in the theology, but um, I beg of you. And so just in those, those words, we see that he has its heartfelt concern expressed. How many of us have heartfelt concern that we never express? That we never express. Heartfelt concern that we never express. We may be agonizing over somebody's situation. We may be having our own difficulties. We may be, we may see somebody that we think is in danger and and oftentimes, if you're like me, you just say, well, no, you're reading too much into it, you know, move on. Or sometimes it's so obvious that somebody's in trouble. They've just said something to you, and you're like, okay, they're in danger of making shipwreck of their entire faith. Am I going to express my heartfelt concern, or am I going to suppress it? Right? How, how many in here have suppressed heartfelt concern? <laughs> yeah. Everybody's hand went up. You suppress it, and why do you do that? Why have you done it? Yeah, you're, you're afraid of being wrong, okay? But what if you know you're not going to be wrong on this? They've made it so obvious. They've just vomited their life in front of you, and it's obvious. And even they've said, you know, I'm in danger of making shipwreck of, of my faith. We still can, like, shut it down, right? There, there are, I think, pettier reasons than I might be wrong. Fear of loss, loss of relationship, fear of cowardice. There are even pettier reasons than these. These are good reasons. I mean, bad, bad, good reasons. Good, bad reasons. Go ahead. Yeah, I'll be embarrassed. I don't have time. I've got a schedule to keep. I've got a wife who's got dinner on the table at 6 o'clock, and if I'm not there, she's going to be unhappy with me. Right? These are the reasons we don't express our heartfelt concern. And I, I, that's the first thing I just wanted to say. I, here's Paul. He's like, okay, he could have stopped with just the theological. He could have just stopped there. But now he gets personal, and he's like, I beg of you. He's looking them in the eyes through the letter. <laughs> and he's 
He's like, I beg of you. So um, that's the first thing. Don't, um, of course, take, take on the... Um, Take on being embarrassed. Live with it, right? Um, Overspeak and repent if you have to, right? And, and clean up afterwards. But I think that's a much better situation than if you never say anybody and don't warn somebody who's in danger, right? Let him go off the cliff and then express your regret to God that you didn't talk to him. Or overspeak and get get crazy in their face, warn them they don't go off the cliff, right, and then go back to them and say, you know what, I'm, I could have, probably could have done better there, but I'm glad you heard me, you know. So he's expressing his intense personal concern, and then he says, I beg of you, brethren, become as I am. For I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong. All right, so I beg of you, brethren, become as I am. So what is that? Um, What does it mean when he says, become as I am? He's made the theological argument. Now he's saying, become as I am. And what is he? He's saying, I'm a Christian who doesn't turn back to the law. Look at me. I'm a Christian that doesn't turn back to the law. That's what the Judaizers are trying to get you to do. But I just preached this to you, and I'm an example of one who believes in salvation, justification by faith alone, and I don't turn back to the law. So become as I am. Don't become as they are. Become as I am. I am a Christian who doesn't turn back to the law. And then he says this, for I have also become as you are. Wait, how has the Apostle Paul become as these Gentile believers have become? Well, he's become like a Gentile in the sense that the ceremonial law has no place in his life and no meaning in his life. It has no function at all. Just like it always was for the Gentiles, right? Ceremonial laws didn't have any, any bearing on their life at all, right? And so he's, he's like, look, I've become like you. I've become without the ceremonial requirements of the Old Testament. So he's still on the same topic of justification. Now, examine yourself in this, another examination. Is your faith the kind of faith where you could say, become as I am? And people would be attracted to it. That's convicting to me, isn't it? I mean, it should be to you too. Become as I am. Could we actually say that and people be attracted to it? Or is it Is our faith sort of superficial or unbelief cloaked with some religion? 
Or are we legalists? And people would be like, no, don't think I want that. Right? Um, or, or is our faith just ugly and joyless? Or is our faith actually faithlessness? It's all struggle. There's, there's no, like, ever relaxing in Jesus Christ and believing. It's all, like, struggle. There's, you know, you, you might have a profession, but you have no way to give a reason for the hope that lies within you because you're a hopeless Christian. You just don't have hope. You don't have... And so... Um, if your faith lacks zeal, hope, joy, can you really say this, become as I am? Are you content with Christ? If you were content with Christ, right, maybe you could say that. If someone saw your contentment, they saw you loving worship, not being so, so staid, so unemotional, in worship, they saw you, they actually could witness you worshiping, or they, they heard you um, gi- giving thanks, just like, man, I'm thankful to God that, that I didn't die, I don't care about the total car, you know, just thanking God, do they hear that, right, do they hear you giving thanks for a sandwich, all these, I mean, um, and so it just got me thinking about that. Could I say, you know, become as I am? And people would be like, not a chance. Is there anything about my uh, contentment in the Lord that people would, are envious of? Is there anything about my faith that, that anybody else would be envious of? You know, do, do I have peace? Or am I just as anxious as the next guy who doesn't know the Lord? But we ought to be able to say, knowing the Scriptures and knowing the promises of God and knowing what we have in Jesus Christ, knowing what He has done and accomplished for us, we ought to be able to say, become as I am. And it's not arrogant, it's not a boast, it is simply... Look at the difference. Look at the difference. Um, Johnson says this from his commentary, We may not be rich. We may not be the most powerful people in the world. We may not be socially popular or great intellectuals, but we do know Christ and are so grateful for what we have in him that we wish that all could be as we are. We can say this to the great icons of our age, the athletes, the entertainers, the media personalities, the rich and famous, the social media influencers. If only you know what I know or had what I have. We would not trade the knowledge of Christ for anything. The conviction fuels the evangelism of the church. Real Christians have an infectious enthusiasm. They have found the greatest thing in the world, and they want to share it with all. 
They found the greatest, most satisfying, most wonderful, most lasting thing in the world. And so how could we not just go around saying, you know, become as I am? And you're not doing it, you're, you're not doing it as sort of just an arrogant statement. You're doing it because the object of what you've been hooked to is, is incredibly gracious and loving and joyful and salvific, right? Not to mention eternal damnation and eternal life. Being rescued from it and transported into the kingdom of the Son. So examine yourself in that. Think it through. Um, what, what would people, if you said, become as I am, and you just said that to somebody, what would they say you're asking them to be? A discontented jerk? An anxious, receding coward? A lover of the Lord Jesus Christ? Someone who, who dies to self and lives for the glory of others? Humble? Or just an arrogant boaster? I mean, it really is sort of a clarifying question, right? Become as I am. Well, in Paul's case, with the Galatians, he's, he's saying, don't go back to the weak and worthless elemental things. Be a Christian like I am, a Christian who doesn't return back to the weak and worthless elemental things that have no power to save. Um, think of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9. That's where... The apostle says, I become like a Jew to win the Jews. You know. And then verse 12, the second half of verse 12, he says, you have done me no wrong. Um, and I think in saying this, he's saying, look, I'm not taking this personally. It's Christ you've betrayed not me. So his point is much bigger than, you know, I, I'm, not a, I'm not going after you right now because I've been hurt. I'm going after you because you've abandoned Christ. Um, you know, it's not me you've wronged, it's Christ. And then he says, but you know that I was, it was because of bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. So apparently he was traveling in the region, he got sick, he had to stay there, he preached the gospel. Providential arrangement of the Apostle Paul's sickness so that he would have to stop there and share the gospel with them, right? I think all of us could give examples of where God has arranged things like this in our lives. We had lives, we were completely inconvenienced by the providence of God and then we shortly then saw, oh, that's why God did that, right? That's why God had me here. And that's what's happened to the Apostle Paul. He gets sick in the area, and, uh, and so he preached the gospel. And then this, this interesting, well, we don't know, I'll just 
leap ahead. We don't know what the bodily illness is that Paul had. Many people contend that it, was, it had to do with his eyes because of what he says in a few verses, right? Um, uh, where is it? Uh, da, 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 da. Um, where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. And it, but it, that could just be a, 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 a saying right? You would have done anything for me. I mean, you would have even plucked out your eyes and given them to me had I needed them, right? That could just be a, a, a saying, a proverb. Um, so he doesn't, we don't know, we, we can't, con, you know, conclude that it was his eyes or that he was disfigured um, in some way. And the reason I say disfigured is what comes in verse 14, and that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe. And some people think that that means that it was a visible disfiguring that, and, and it just made him look nasty, right? Which could again be the eyes, some affliction of the eyes. Um, I don't think, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I wouldn't make a, a full court press for um, the eyes being the issue. But what I do want to take out of this, again, is more self-examination. Um, notice that the Apostle Paul says about their response to his bodily illness, you did not despise or loathe me for my bodily illness. Was the illness disfiguring? Not necessarily. Um, those of you who are strong, whom God has given a healthy body, have a temptation to look down and loathe those who are continually weak. This is human pride. This is human arrogance. Um, the strong can get very impatient with the weak. Be a nurse for a week and find out how quickly you can get upset by somebody who's being afflicted, right? Take care of your aging parents and find out just how angry you can get at them even though they can't do anything for themselves anymore because of the severe affliction that they're under, right? It is, it is unfortunately... Um, part of our human nature and our sin that we, that, that the strong despise the weak and those who are chronically healthy despise those who are chronically ill. It doesn't take disfiguration to loathe someone for their condition. It just takes them being tired all the time and you hate them. Even the members of your own household. You know, <clears throat> another migraine? You've got to be kidding me. Another gimpy knee? You know, another uh, bout of vomiting? You've got to be kidding me. What are they doing wrong? Don't they wash their hands?
It's because they're using hand sanitizer. <laughs> it's just alcohol. Okay, and so just, again, examine yourself in this. Um, he was thrilled that he was afflicted, and they didn't despise him for it. Right? They didn't despise him for it. Jesus was afflicted, and people despised him for it. Afflicted even by ha hanging on a tree, he was hated for it. Right? And so be very careful, you whom God has given strength to. And, and how many... How many weak or stronger brethren passages are there in the Apostle Paul's writings? A lot, right? He knows this is an issue in the church, right? The, weak, the, the strong despising the weak. Okay, so be very careful about this. When, when, um, when a woman is, is diagnosed with one of these mystery diseases that causes severe pain, and, you, and it's undiagnosable, are you going to dismiss it? Are you going to tell them that they should change their diet? Are you going to despise them for it? Are you going to be exasperated that they can't participate in things? Or are you going to love them? And loving them does not mean telling them 45 different homemade concoctions that would cure them. Okay? There's a time for that. And somebody who is chronically in pain would do anything to get rid of that pain. Even if there was some new therapy about licking sidewalks or bathroom seats. They would do it, okay? But they just need to be encouraged, right? They need to be encouraged to persevere. They need to be encouraged that this, this may be um, that God can sustain you through pain. Like God is not ignorant of this. God knows about this, okay? And God is with you. And why he's done this, we don't know, but you can persevere through pain. And so I'm going to pray that God helps you persevere through pain, even before I start to pray that you get healed. Okay, so let's be careful about this. And I'm, I'm as guilty as anybody in, on this front. Sometimes when you've gone through a period of your life where your body is afflicted, you begin to despise other people whose bodies are afflicted. Because you're like, well, I've gone through 12 years of active Crohn's disease. And you know what every day was like with active Crohn's disease? And so when someone starts complaining about having a four-day cold, you're just kind of like, what an idiot. Give me a break. You know, and so we can get, we can, <laughs> we get proud by the things God afflicts us with to break our pride. <laughs> right? Terrible. We sin hundreds of times a day. All right, I'll move on from there. You draw your own applications, okay? But these Galatians, when Paul was there the first time, they heard the gospel, they received it from him. He was sick, something was going on, it seemed to be apparent, and they didn't hate him for it, they didn't despise him. They wanted the word of God. They wanted to learn of 
their Savior. And so they received Paul, even as if he were an angel of God or as Christ Jesus himself. Oh, man. You know, they were like, okay, what we have here in the Apostle Paul serving us is like God sent us an angel or his son himself. And that's how powerful the preaching was. So 14, where then is that sense of blessing you had? It's gone. You received me like I was an angel or Jesus, and now that sense of blessing is gone. Where does it go? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. And again, another application of this. Pastors who led us to Christ and churches within which we were first converted become the benchmark to us of all faithfulness. The first church you went to where you came alive in Christ is the benchmark by which you judge all subsequent churches should, should you move and have to go to another church. Um, When other pastors or churches don't follow those churches, specifically down to the last detail, we have trouble with it, right? The Galatians, um, the Galatians are going, going the opposite way. And maybe they didn't have previous previous experience, but in our experience, the, the ministry we first came alive in becomes this paradigm, and then you go into the next church, and what you're looking for is a recreation of what the context you left, and when it isn't there because it won't be, it never will be, Trinity Presbyterian is not Trinity Reformed. It's in Spartanburg, South Carolina. It's not in a college town, right? It's not 400. It's 100. Um, Larry's not in the other churches, right? You know, and, and I mean, I could say that of all of you. All of you are not in those other churches. God has brought us together into this crazy family, right? Some mature, some immature, some new, some knowledgeable, some not knowledgeable. Um, some wheat, some tares. But, but be careful, be careful on this. Why do I get this out of this passage? Um, it's just me thinking about that, the... the the initial experience of the Galatians, you know, they, it was as if Jesus was there, it was as if angels were there, it was that all the blessings of God were being poured out at them, but then think of somebody leaving that context and going the next place, they'd be like, man, what a downgrade, what a, I mean, just the pastoral care here, the preaching, right, I'm going to have to listen to R.C. Sproul online, I can't listen to this guy's sermons. You know, and we judge uh, our context that way. And um, that should 
that should be fought against. It's a different context, it's a different church, it's different gifts, and God is at work there, and you may need that context, okay? And you may need to step up in that context in a way you didn't have to in the previous context. But what you can't do is go around having left utopia, despising every other church you go to after that. First of all, the first church wasn't utopia. I'll tell you that. But the church that we were converted in and first grew in and people poured into us seems like utopia. It's the closest we get to heaven on earth, it seems, right? I mean, it's a wonderful time, but, but don't then take that experience and expect that every other context is going to be the same. God doles out his gifts, not just to individuals, but to different churches in different ways. There are different gifts in churches, okay? Different composite of people. All right, and then this statement in 16, so 15, where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? And that's Paul leaning over the pulpit, you know, in one hand. Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? That's where he's most intense. He's gone from being an angel to being an enemy. He's gone from being Jesus in their midst to being an enemy. Why? He spoke the truth. For the the church in Galatia, The doctrine of justification by faith alone had become boring. It was boring. It was unfulfilling to them. It was more tantalizing for some Judaizer to come in and say, yeah, man, let's get our meats in order. You know? Let's add rituals. Let's put together the yearly calendar and put on it all those dates that are holy days, and we don't have to even make them up, like Americans do. We can just pull them from God's inerrant, inspired word. Plop them down, and we're going to be like Christians with muscles. We're going to do it all. We're going to be comprehensive you know, we're going we're gonna to truly, this will be the church. This will be the pattern that goes out into all the world, right? And, and yet, what had they forgotten? That Paul came in their midst and said, you, you can be saved if you believe in Jesus. You don't have to do anything. All you have to do is believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And they're like, yeah, man, I don't know. I don't, I mean, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to give up that, those self-satisfying outward works. I don't want to give up that which I can boast about, right? 
I haven't, I haven't missed a Passover celebration in 63 years. That's the boast I want to have. I haven't missed a holy day. I have never, ever eaten shellfish. Do you hear me? Never. I they didn't want to give that up. That, that to them was like, okay, yeah, Jesus. Okay, yeah, Jesus, but I'm not going to let filthy food pass through my mouth that God said was filthy. If they had read the Gospels, they would have known that that was foolishness. Okay, so again, self-examination, we can be thrilled by complexity and leave behind simplicity. Right? We want complex systems that we can somehow, you know, slow and steady and build up and, and dig into and boast about and compare notes with others. And, 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 and Paul's just like, Believe in Jesus, you're saved. <laughs> oh, Paul, you're so, such a simpleton. You know how people are going to abuse that? You know how many people are just going to come in here and say, yeah, I believe, I'm saved. We need to have some actual rigor. You know, you and I can grow tired of the truth of the gospel. You and I can get tired of hearing that sinners are saved by grace. We grow tired of having no boast. Our pride rises up. It rises up even against God. And we just want to have one time the ability just to say, you know what? I have one there. And the gospel just demolishes all of that takes away every single boast you might ever have. It demolishes the worthiness of everything you've done. It beats you down and then offers you perfect righteousness, perfect merit, perfect purity, perfect holiness. And you're like, eh. Just by faith? No, that can't be true. But a truly converted person revels in the message of justification by faith alone. An unconverted person rejects it and prefers the mes message of justification by works. Okay? The truly converted are like justification by faith alone. I could meditate on this for hundreds of millions of years and never run out of reasons to give thanks to God. It's not boring to me in the least. Right? But the unconverted person is just like, yeah, it's boring, it's too simple. Let's, let's climb the highest mountain in the world. You know? And then I'll be able to put something on the back of my car that says 26.2 or that says I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. The rest of you are lazy idiots. broader application of this, you will become enemies with people when you speak truth. That's why some of us never do.
We consider friendship with loyalty to the world better than friendship with and loyalty to God. So let's stop there. We're out of time. (laughs) Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that you have not left us to ourselves. Thank you for the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Lord, we do desire to grow in holiness to fear you properly in a, in a filial way. And Father, I pray that we would um, never grow tired of the simplicity of the gospel. That it would be our joy. That it would be our joy to explain it to others. And Father, forgive us for our pride and our boasting. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.